emotionally, Lord, in this time. Please speak to us this morning, Lord. We, we, um, we desire your voice, so please speak to us through the word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, and so we continue in uh, our, our study of the life of Abraham, um, who, who is really for us an example of everything that we're going to go through. Everything that he went through is what we will go through. That is uh, the purpose of his recorded story in the scripture. He is the father of all of those who walk by faith in this life. And so if he's the father, uh, that makes us the children. And uh, as with any father-child relationship, we look at our father and we learn a whole lot about ourselves. And so uh, as we pick up now in chapter 20 uh, of Genesis and the narrative of his story, we are about um, 25 years into uh, the into it from the time that we picked it up in chapter 12. So from the time that he left Babylon until now, it's been about 25 years. We've seen a whole lot of progress that's been made by Abraham. And uh, we've seen setbacks. We've seen his errors. We've seen his failures. We've seen his successes and victories. We've seen his growth. We've seen him come into stability. We've seen uh, um, God take things out of his life, and we've seen God put things into his life. We've seen God's work in this man. Um, and tonight we see a little bit of a lapse, a little bit of a failure um, uh, later on in his in his experience. You know, and it's a warning to us as we consider our own lives that we we never mature to a point where we are without fault or uh, without the potential of, of making mistakes. Um, and so, as we pick it up in verse one. It says that Abraham journeyed from there toward the south country, and he dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned uh, or dwelt then in uh, Gerar. So um, where Abraham had been living for over the past 15 years was in a place that's called Hebron or Mamre or the plains of Mamre. And we've uh, seen him there for quite some time uh, previous to him now picking up his tent and his his people and moving uh, from there. Uh, Mamre, which is where he was, it means fatness. And the plains of Mamre would be the plains of fatness. And that certainly describes what Abraham's life was like during those 15 years. God had led him to Hebron and to Mamre. And God had blessed him there. There was uh, a great peace that was uh, upon his life while he was in that place. God knew where to find him. If you recall back from chapter 18, and God visited Abraham there with two angels and knew right where to find him. That's where he had led him and where he'd put him. And Abraham had good roots uh, in that place of Hebron and Mamre. And so as we read now in chapter 20 that he uprooted from that place and moved somewhere now down in the south, the first question uh, that would come to us is why in the world would he do that? Uh, we read nothing in this that there was a famine like there had been when he moved away from where he was last time. There was no revelation. God didn't speak to him and say, okay, Abram, I'm finished with you here and uh, you, you know my blessings run out here, so I want you to go somewhere else. We knew, read nothing of prayer that he asked God and said, God, where do you want to take me now at this point in my life? And certainly there's no conflict. There's nothing happening um, politically or politically. 
uh, amongst the neighbors or the people around him that would cause him to do it. And uh, you know, so there's no reason for him to do this. And furthermore, everything was good. There was peace. There was prosperity in Hebron. There was stability in Hebron. Everything uh, that, that, that would just constitute normal life is there. So the question, why did he leave? And we're never really told uh, with any type of definitiveness why it is that he left from there but perhaps uh it was one of those things that every one of us um can can um kind of be tempted with or touched by and that would be just change for the sake of change you know the scenery uh is a little bit old uh everything is kind of familiar uh lost a little bit of impetus maybe or motivation and you know maybe it's just time for something different time to just move uh perhaps it's somewhat of a midlife crisis for abraham he's about 100 years old at this time he'll live to be about 175 uh, which is generally about the right timing for a midlife crisis. You know, if you uh, put it into years, he, he's uh, four-sevenths of, of the way through his lifespan um, and maybe just coming to a point now where he uh, is, is looking for some kind of a change. It isn't uncommon uh, for, for men, for women, for anybody really, uh, to come to a point in their life where they have a little bit of wanderlust. You know, you look around at your surroundings a little bit and you say, uh, you know what, I, I, I want to see the world. I want to see more. There's got to be something else other than here. Why not? And uh, it could be just that simple, that Abram just a little bit of wanderlust uproots from where he was in Hebron and he goes now to this place called Gerar. It could also be uh, the reason for this change um, is that there's a fearfulness that rises up within Abraham because of, uh, because of what has just taken place in the city of Sodom. If you recall, in our last study, in chapter 19, we saw the destruction of those uh, wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we were told in that chapter that when Abram uh, rose up in the morning and he went out to the place where he had his morning devotions, it says that he could see the smoke of Sodom uh, arising from, from the place where he dwelt in Hebron. Now, if you look at uh, the distance between Hebron and Sodom, they were not next-door neighbors. It wasn't like, you know, you could just throw a rock and, and there it, it lands now in Sodom. I mean, you're talking something a, a good uh, 15, at least 15 or 20 miles away. And he can see the smoke of the destruction of Sodom arising from that place. And not knowing that Lot was uh, necessarily removed from there, though we know he was because we read it in the text. Um, but it could just very well be that something so severe took place. And that judgment was severe. We're going to see it in this chapter tonight that everyone knew what took place in Sodom. Uh, that maybe just something struck a chord within Abram and there was a fearfulness that rose up inside of him. And he was shaken a little bit by it. And that can happen to us. It happens to us in the modern day. I don't know if it happens to you. But sometimes God uh, in his sovereignty will allow something to happen or will do something in the world or in someone's life that, that will just shake us a little bit. You know, it'll, it'll knock us off of our foundation of security, of, of stability. When I think of even the very thing uh, that's going on with my cousin that we just prayed for. And you look at that and you say, okay, these are, are, are born-again uh, people. These are people that love the Lord. These are people that are, are, are literally laying down their lives 
uh, for the sake of other people. I mean, who does that, uh, adopts like that, and, and, and under those conditions, and, and to, at great expense to themselves in every way, physically, financially, emotionally, you know, and then to, to find out there's cancer. It's aggressive cancer. It's, you know, perhaps untreatable cancer. And that can shake not just the person who's experiencing it, but it can shake people that are looking at it from the outside and going, what in the world, God, is this something I have to worry about now? You know, I, there's enough to worry about it in this life, and now i got to worry about that too. Or, you know, it could be something more generic. You know, we look at something that God does in the world. We see a nation fall, or we see a leader become assassinated, or we watch uh, something that we're uh, familiar with just kind of fall out, like the economy or something like that. And, and all of a sudden, we can just begin to say, God, you know, I've, I've, I've maybe been a little bit on autopilot. I haven't thought about these things, but maybe I should be. You know, and, 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 and it could be that there's a little bit of that in Abram's life as he just looks and he considers everything that's happening in his world around him. And he just decides, you know what, maybe the best thing for us to do right now is not sit still, but just to do something because we don't know what to do. It could be that the reason for Abram's uh, departure from Hebron is that he was a little bit discouraged. And discouragement can touch anyone at any time, can it? And uh, it could be that Abram at this point, 25 years in, looks at his life. And yes, he has a lot of material substance. He's very wealthy. He has servants. He has cattle. He has oxen. He has silver. He has gold. Uh, he has a lot of respect and esteem um, it, it, you know, amongst his own people and also the people that are surrounding him. But he looks at it all and he, and he realizes, what in the world am I doing? I, I, I would have all of this if I was still in Babylon uh, he wasn't a poor man when he, when he left. Everything had been going fine. That was home. It was familiar. The whole reason he left Babylon is because he was looking for you know, a place that he could plant roots uh, that would be lasting and that would bring satisfaction. Uh, the whole desire and drive of Abraham's life was that he would have a son and descendants and someone to pass it on to and that it would go beyond just the here and now. And 25 years into it all, he looks at his life and he says, what do I have to show for it? I've got a whole lot of money. I've got a whole lot of substance. People respect me. But really, in the long term, what do I have? And he looked at it and perhaps he just thought, you know, I really don't have all that much. And even though God has given me his word and he's confirmed it over and over again, there still is no two lines on the pregnancy test. You, you know, I still don't have a son, uh, you, you know, to, to, call, to call my own. And, uh, and he's got nothing to show for it. He could be looking at, at, at the, the, the things that are concerning his life and he could see the changes that have taken place over the 25 years, and he could be a little bit maybe uh, um, disillusioned by it. He, he, when he left and he first came into the land, Lot was with him, and, and there were happier days. They were days when there was expectation. The hope tank, as I call it, uh, was a lot fuller. <laughs> you know, there was hope. He, he, you know, there was a lot more time in front of him, and he was expecting that things would happen a certain way, and the changes uh, and the complication of the days were a little bit overwhelming for him. Isn't it amazing how uh, sometimes life can seem like a kaleidoscope? You know, you ever look in one of those things, you know, kaleidoscope, and you put it in the light and you turn it, and the patterns, they just continually change, and, and, and you just, no matter how many times you turn it, you just never, ever, ever see the same pattern twice. And, and so you can kind of like have the kaleidoscope of, of your life and you can dial it into a certain point and you can say, you know what, I really like the way things look right here. 
and I love the colors, and you just stare at it, and you look at it, and you can figure it out, and you can say, I see where everything is, I love the way this is, this, this is laid out, it all makes sense to me, I know where it is, and then, and then what happens is you just wish you could just say, okay, world, stop turning right here, just stop, but it doesn't. <laughs> it keeps going and you're going no 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 don't don't change don't don't change but there's absolutely nothing you could do about it and un, uh, uncontrolled by you unbeknownst to you things begin to change the scenery changes the color changes uh situations and circumstances change everything in life just keeps on going whether we like it or not and the colors on the kaleidoscope can for us come to a point where we just say what in the world is happening here and everything in us would maybe even want to go back to the way things were five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago or at some other point, maybe even in our childhood. And we just wish we could freeze everything the way it was at that point, And we can't. And when we look at the colors as they are now, there can almost be a hopelessness that comes over us as we realize that, that could it ever be the way it was or will it ever be good or will it ever be better than this? And you can never, ever, ever go back, no matter how much you want to. There's a song um, by uh, an artist, her name is Sarah Groves, uh, quite talented. And one of the songs that she sings that just always resonates with me, always, is called Painting Pictures of Egypt. And it's a song about the children of Israel wanting to go back to Egypt. Uh, and and the, you know the, how they complained about how they had it better in Egypt uh, when they were slaves than they did when they were free, but yet wandering in the wilderness. And uh, equating it to her own life, she says, I've been painting pictures of Egypt in my mind, and everything in me wants to go back. But these are the words that get me every time. She says this. She says, but the places I have been to cannot hold the things I've learned. In other words, for me to try to go back, if I could even go back, the places that I have been can't hold the things that I've learned thus far. And no matter how much it seems like those days might be better, that they wouldn't be sufficient for, for what I've been taught in the process of getting to where I am now. And there's always an encouragement to me to realize that. And no matter how, you know, maybe uh, hopeless a circumstance might seem to me in the present tense, uh, to go back would never, never, ever be to my benefit. You know, the, the places we've been can't hold the things that we've learned. Um, and the doors, uh, and, and she goes on to say in, in the song that... Um, those doors have been closed off to me while my back was turned. There's no going back. You cannot go backwards in life. But maybe Abraham just remembers a better time when Lot was with him, uh, when things were simpler, when there was a lot more hope, and he just gets a little uh, depressed uh, and discouraged in the whole thing. Maybe he's a little bit tired at this point, too. Uh, he sees everything that's going on around him. He's realizing how difficult life can be under the circumstances that he's in and, uh, and just wants a break. And, and it's just an opportunity. Let's just go somewhere else. Maybe life will be a little bit easier if we move south. You ever felt that way? <laughs> life would just be a little bit easier if we move south. And that's exactly what Abraham does in this. Let me tell you guys something um, that I have learned and am learning is that no matter how difficult your life or my life is in the present tense, we need that difficulty in our lives. We absolutely need every bit of difficulty that is in our lives. It is Father-filtered. It is God-ordained. He knows what it is, and He knows that we need it. In Lamentations uh, chapter 
3. Um, Jeremiah, who is the author of Lamentations, is just considering how difficult life is for the people of God in his day. And he says these words, and they're very profound. He says, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth, meaning that he work hard. He sits alone and he keeps silence because he's born, he has borne it upon him. God has placed it upon him. He puts his mouth in the dust, if so be that there may be hope. He gives his cheek to him that smites him. He is fulled fill with reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he, that is God, cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Meaning that the difficulty in our lives is not because God just wants us to have a hard life. He's not just saying, you know what, let me just see how, how hard I can make life for you. That's not his heart in, in allowing difficulty within us to grieve us. He doesn't do that to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man from before the face of the Most High, or to subvert a man in his cause or frustrate him. Oh, you think your plan, you want your plans to come to pass? Watch this. And God just does something that kills our, he doesn't do it for that reason. Who is he that says it has come to pass when the Lord commands not, um, uh, lost my place, when the Lord commands not out of the mouth, out of the mouth of the Most High proceeds not evil and good? Wherefore does a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Then he goes, uh, goes on and he just kind of talks about it a little bit. But basically what Jeremiah is saying there is he's saying, listen, the, the difficulty or the affliction that you're feeling in whatever part of your life that you're in is absolutely necessary from God for you, for your protection. When, when the curse came upon mankind in the Garden of Eden, it says that, that God looked at Adam and Eve and he said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In other words, it was to man's best interest that he would have to labor for the sweat of his brow. When I came full-time on the staff uh, at the church here, uh, my life changed dramatically. I went from being um, stretched so thin uh, that I was constantly feeling that I was on the breaking point. Like this is an impossibly, uh, it's unsustainable life to to try to do all the things that I'm doing. There was not one millimeter on the margins of my page. There was nothing at all. And when I came on the staff here, all of a sudden I had margins. Things changed. I wasn't driving to and fro Manhattan every day, you know, and there was there was more time, less money, you know, but, but there was there was more time and there was just a different type of margins. And there was an adjustment because what I learned from that experience is that when your life has margins, there's constantly things that want to creep onto those margins, <laughs> uh, without your, with maybe without your consent or w- while you're not paying attention. And if you're not careful and you don't guard those margins, things can creep into your life that will absolutely destroy you. And so if God has a degree of difficulty in our lives, there's a reason for that difficulty. He's protecting us from something else. And it's, it's wise of us to, to realize that and not try to change it but just allow him to do his will and trust that he's got our best interest in mind and that there is a season coming where he'll, he'll loosen up according to, to what he sees as best for us. Maybe Abraham's just tired. You know what? I, I, want, I would like it to be a little bit easier. He leaves. He leaves Hebron and he goes down now to this place called Gerar. Now, Gerar was south, a little bit south of a town called Gaza, 
which was a land that was controlled by the Philistines. It wasn't a good place for Abraham to go. It also happens to be that Gerar lies just north, just barely north of the Egyptian border. Now we saw last time Abraham got discouraged and he walked away from where God had him. Where did he go? He went to Egypt. That's when, uh, you know, they picked up Hagar and the whole thing happened there. Now he goes about as close as he can to the border of disobedience without crossing it. (laughs) That's where he goes. I'm not going back into Egypt. I learned my lesson last time. I'll just get as close as I possibly can, and maybe I'll try to glom some of the benefits of Egypt without actually going into Egypt. So he goes now to the very edge of where he's supposed to be. Um, uh, but he's really not supposed to be there at all. So what's the result of this? What's the result of Abraham uprooting himself and leaving the place where God has him to go somewhere where he thinks uh, will be a better place for him? Notice what it says as we read on then in verse 2. It says that Abraham, now now that he comes into Gerar, that he said of Sarah, his wife, that she is my sister. Gentlemen, When we go backwards or go to places that we have been, beware that you don't do things that you used to do. That's exactly what Abraham does here. He walks in an old way and he begins to behave in an old way. He does something that last time turned out to be a disaster. And the definition of insanity is to repeat the same thing over and over again and expect a different outcome. <laughs> and so he says that she is my sister, and Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. That was customary in that day. And since she is, uh, by all his knowledge, a single woman who is unmarried, that makes her fair game to be brought into his harem, And so Abram, for the sake of uh, sparing his own life, gives up his wife uh, now into the harem of this Gentile king, Abimelech. Yes? Do you think he lied to protect Sarah? Or do you think he lied so he could have his own independence? I think he lied to protect himself. Because he's going to tell us at the end of the chapter uh, why he did it. He says um, because he's afraid that they'd kill him to take her. So he did it to protect himself. He didn't do it to protect her. I mean, there's no protection for her in that. He's hanging her out there in a thousand ways, you know. So um, so verse 3, it says, but God, and I hope you'll circle those words because it's one of many times in the Bible that those words are put together, but God. And thank God that there are but gods <laughs> in the Bible because every time there's a but God, On the left side of the but God, there's some stupid thing that's in us. (laughs) And on the right side of the but God, there's a grace or a mercy that's provided by him that saves our hide. (laughs) And so he says, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are but a dead man. Now, you don't want to hear that from God. You might hear that from another man. It might not move you as much. But when you hear that from God, you better fear. He says, for the woman which you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord. Now, notice that he calls him Lord. 
Will you also slay a righteous nation? Now, don't pass that by, because what that tells us right there is that Gerar was also shaken by the events that had recently taken place in Sodom. He was affected by it. He said, Lord, will you also slay a righteous nation? He knew that God had just slain a wicked nation, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, take note that even a Gentile king knew both that what had happened in Sodom was wicked and that it was God that intervened and judged it and destroyed it. The Bible says that in our very um, fiber, the fiber of every man, there is the knowledge that there is a supreme. There is no such thing as atheism. There is a such thing as agnosticism, which is, you know, uh, basically an I don't know or, uh, you know, I don't have enough information yet. But atheism is not written in us. It is written in every man that there is something higher. And even Gerar, this Gentile king, knew that, wi- that there was wickedness in Sodom and that, 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 uh, that it was God that had intervened in it. He says, will you also slay a righteous nation? And then he presents his case before God in verse 5. Abimelech says, said he not unto me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. In other words, I did not knowingly take another man's wife into my harem and bring upon myself guilt and your judgment. I did this in perfect innocency. I went through all the channels of making sure that that woman was fair game before taking her in and all of the checks were there. This, she was not a, a, a taken woman. And so that's his case before God. Now notice God's response in verse 6. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Now what we're going to find out later on in this chapter is that God had smitten all of the men and all of the women in the land of Gerar with a sickness, an impotency, and a barrenness. And the reason why God did that was for the sake of Sarah. And so God allowed a sickness and a disease to come upon a people, listen, to protect them from sin. Isn't that interesting? And God even says, I kept you. I withheld you from sinning against me. Do you see that sin is always against God? Sin is always against God. Therefore, he says, I suffered thee not to touch her. Now, what gives me great comfort in that that verse is this, is that if in our heart we are inclined to obedience, meaning that we want to do what's right in the sight of God, that he will honor that by putting protections in our life to keep us from sin. Because there are times that we get involved in sin that we, we, we get blindsided by it. We have no idea. We, we didn't see it coming from a mile away. Or we get ourselves into something we didn't even realize, and then we're trapped. We're in bondage. And God's, God sees our heart. And when he sees in us that our desire is to be free from sin and to honor him, he builds protections into our life to keep us from sinning against him. And I praise God for that. He did that even for Abimelech, who was a Gentile, not even a, a saved man. And so, uh, verse 7, he says, Now therefore, so God gives his counsel. This is what I want you to do, Abimelech, and you have the choice now whether you're going to obey me or whether you're going to resist. He says, Now therefore, restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. 
And if you restore her not, know thou that you surely shall die, you and all that are thine. Now, I want you to mark something here. Mark this. Mark the level of protection that God places over the lives of those that are called his own. That God is willing to wipe out a king and the entire nation that's subservient to that king for the sake of protecting one man and his wife. And that's the level of protection that God places upon all those that belong to him. And that should be a great comfort to us. Abraham has no idea that that protection is there or that this is going on at this time. But yet, it is, nevertheless. Therefore, so Abimelech, here's this thing. He goes, here's my ultimatum. Okay, I can keep the woman, (laughs) and I die, (laughs) and everyone else. Or I give the woman back, and everything goes back to the way it was before. Hmm, let me think about it for a minute. Now, amazingly, probably half the population would keep the woman and suffer the consequences, but Abimelech is a little bit smarter than that. Therefore, Abimelech rose early in the morning, quick response, and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears. And it says that the men were sore afraid. The fear of God, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is just simply making good decisions, knowing what to do and then doing it. That's wisdom. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, meaning that when we fear a being who's more powerful than we are and that controls outcomes in our lives, when we have a genuine fear of him, that's a very good foundation for making good decisions in life. And these men are wise. The fear of God comes upon them, and that fear causes them to make a good decision. So Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What have you done unto us? Now, listen carefully. The Bible says this, that the righteous are as bold as a lion. And the sad narrative in this text is that the righteous man in this is Abimelech. (laughs) And the faulted one is Abraham. So although Abimelech has just been threatened with his life over the, the woman in his harem, he is the one who's bold as a lion when he comes to Abram now and reproves him for the lie that he told. He says, what have you done unto us and what have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? It's your fault, Christian, that I'm in sin right now. That's a reproach, isn't it? That stings. Christian, it's your fault that I'm in sin. And he's right. You have done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, what sawest thou that you have done this thing? So what what happens here is we have the second result of Abram's bad move. His bad move was leaving Hebron. He should have stayed put right where he was. The first, you know, result of it is that he walked in former sins, the lie that he told. It's always going to be the case with us. The second outcome of it is that he brings pain upon a group of people that are undeserving of that pain. He brings pain upon his family and upon his wife that is undeserving by them. And he brings shame upon himself. And that's always going to be the outcome of our 
you know, tendency to walk outside of the will of God for our lives. It causes unnecessary pain and it brings shame where that's also unnecessary. And so he, he says, what did you see that you did this thing? In other words, what caused you when you came into Gerar to think that you needed to lie to us in this way and bring this deception uh, upon us? Was there anything here? When you walked into Gerar, did you see us abusing our women? Did you see us taking all the guests and people that went through and taking the women and killing the men? What did you see, Abram, that made you think that you needed to tell this lie that brought this sin upon us? And so Abraham now comes clean, and this is to Abram's credit in verse 11. It says that Abraham said, because I thought, now there's the word, you see that word? You could cross that word, no, don't cross it off. We don't want to cross off words in the Bible, but close by it, you could write the word assume, (laughs) And we all know what assume stands for, right? (laughs) What happens when we make assumptions? That's what Abraham did. He made an assumption. And here's the assumption that Abraham made. It's the second time in his life that he's made this assumption. Is that these people are so crooked that in their understanding, adultery is sin. But murder is okay. Because that's his mindset, that they're going to kill him and take her. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so their rationale is so messed up that we can kill people, but adultery is fine. Or adultery is messed. You, would, you commit adultery, you're a dead man. But you kill someone to take their wife, uh, well, now at least you've you know, set things right before you sinned. You know, you know, kind of a thing. But really, Abraham is the one who's in total folly here. Because his sin is that he's given over to abandonment, he's given his wife over to abandonment, and he's lying in order to save his own hide. (laughs) So he's assuming sin upon them, but in actuality, he's the one that is sinning. He said, surely I assumed the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. They'll kill me to take her. And then he justifies his lie. In such a crafty, legal jargon, He says, and yet, indeed, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Or, I'm sorry, she's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And that's true. So this half-truth was a total lie. Now, we're all, yeah, that's right, anyways, you know. But do you realize that a half-truth is a total lie? When it speaks of the accusation that the soldiers brought upon Jesus Christ when they were accusing him before Pilate and seeking to bring a death sentence down upon him, it says that they accused him and they bore false witness against him, saying that he said in three days, I will destroy this temple and rise it again. Now, the incredible thing about that is that that was absolutely true. He did say those words. But that's not what he meant. And they knew that's not what he meant. So they took what he actually said, spun it in a way to make it say something that he didn't say, and think that they walked away that day and told the perfect truth. And the Bible says that was false witness. A half-truth is a total lie. And that's what Abraham does. Well, she actually is my sister. I, you know, I didn't really touch that woman, you know, kind of a thing. Total lie. But what I like about Abraham, well, let me read the, the, the next verse, verse 13. It says that it came to pass that when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, 
This is thy kindness which you shall show unto me at every place where we shall come. Say of me that he is my brother. Now what I like about Abraham in this is that when he's called out, he comes absolutely clean. He he gives the rationale behind what he does. He confesses that what he did was wrong and he seeks restitution for it. The Bible calls this in a word sincerity. It's what it means to be sincere. The Bible doesn't assume or place upon any one of us that that we're going to be perfect and that we're never going to make a mistake. In fact, the opposite is true. God knows that we're going to blow it. He knows that we're going to make mistakes and sometimes we're going to make big mistakes. And he doesn't condemn us for that. That's why he sent his son to the cross to make provision for that. But what he does ask of us is that when we blow it, when we sin, is that we repent and that we confess and that we make it right. That's what God asks of us. And that's what the Bible calls sincerity. It means that we don't try to hide our flaws. It means that we expose them for what they are and make it right. And that's what God asks of us. In the Proverbs, it says this. It says, whosoever seeks to cover his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsaketh it will find mercy. So the Bible says. And to Abraham's credit, he does that. He, he says, you've got me. I, there is nothing that I can say to you in this that is going to make me better than what I am. Uh, you are right, and I am wrong. That's an extremely humbling thing to do, isn't it? But Abraham does it. And so Abimelech now, verse 14, heaps coals of fire on his head, like it says in the New Testament. Go ahead. I've always been a little unclear on when you confess. Is, are you confessing to God or to another person? Um, it becomes fearful to share your, your, your sin. Yeah, you confess it to God. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins and it's to him, then he is faithful and just to forgive us and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, when we sin against another person, that's when we confess to them. It's part of our apology. You know what I'm saying? So if our sin is directly against another person uh, and it merits a confession, then we confess to that person, right? Um, but not just for the sake of exposing our stupidness to everyone. That's, you know, that's not necessary uh, nor profitable. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was in a meeting one time like this. It was kind of like a men's group. And uh, um, one of the one of the brothers, you know, someone said something about confessing. And one of the brothers raised his hand. And he, right in the middle of the meeting, uh, confessed across the room that he was coveting after one of the other guy's wives. You know, you don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that <laughs> you just you just you bring that to god in total honesty <laughs> you know of uh <laughs> awkward <laughs> no. oh gosh jesus said that when you repay good to those that do evil to you, you heap burning coals of fire on their head. And that's exactly what Abimelech, this Gentile king, does to Abram in verse 14. It says that Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them unto Abraham and restored him Sarah his wife. So not only does he give him Sarah back, as God said, he goes over and beyond that. And now Abraham has to watch 
as person after person and, 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 and animal after animal, animal and dime after dime is now put into his possession, money that he did not earn, things that he does not deserve, coming from the hand of someone whom he has offended. How much does that hurt? Put yourself in Abram's shoes for just a minute. This is totally unnecessary shame. I don't think Abram was comforted at all in the acquisition of these goods. In fact, I think that he would have done anything not to have these goods in his possession. But worse than the goods are the words that follow. In verse 15, it says that Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. You're welcome to stay here. Even though you've done this thing. He got kicked out of Egypt for this. They threw him out. (laughs) Uh, Abimelech doesn't even kick him out. He says, you want to stay here? You can stay here. But notice then what he says to Sarah in verse 16. And this is really directed at Abraham, though he speaks it to Sarah. It says, and unto Sarah, he said, behold, I have given thy brother. Ouch. A thousand pieces of silver. So if you if you you know uh, were to quantify all that was given to Abram in a sum of money, it would be a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is, and the word he there, this is a tough verse to, to untangle, but the he is attached to the thousand pieces of silver, not to the man Abram. Um, but basically, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with you and with all other, thus she was reproved. Now, that's such a difficult verse, and I I looked up each word so that I would get this right uh, before you. But basically, here is what Abimelech is saying to Sarah and Abraham. He's saying, listen, he's saying, I just gave your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Tell him to buy you thicker clothing that hides your beautiful appearance. (laughs) Use the money to cover your face so that this doesn't happen again. (laughs) In other words, that your eyes, the eyes of the people with you and other people are not taken by your beauty again. And it says, thus she was reproved. The word actually means that she was exonerated, meaning that her righteousness in this situation was uh, observed or declared that this wasn't her fault. And it wasn't her fault. Though she lied as well, she was obedient to what Abraham had asked her to do. It was Abraham's sin. So when it says that she was reproved, it actually means that her reproach was removed. That's the idea uh, behind it. So Abraham then prayed unto God. So now humbling uh, experience number three. Not only was he rebuked, not only was he then given money that he didn't want, but now he's got to pray for this guy so that he can be healed. And he does it. It says, so Abraham prayed unto God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants and they bore children. And so God heals, God restores to Abimelech uh, um, his health and and the, um, the fruitfulness of the people of the land. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife and all of this. So what are the takeaways for us as we wrap up now uh, the chapter and, and look at our own lives through its lens? Number one is this, beware in your own life of discouragement. Beware of the powerful thing of discouragement. There's a story told uh, one, that one time Satan had a garage sale and in his garage sale, he was selling all of his uh, most prized possessions and, and tools and instruments of, of his trade and, and the things he used to deceive and to destroy men's lives. 
And uh, so people were looking at all these beautiful uh, instruments and, you know, their price tags and marveling at all, all of these devices in which he had created. And, uh, and, and someone looked behind the table and over in the corner, uh, kind of covered up but half exposed and not for sale, was this old rackety-looking thing, you know. And, and someone pointed and said, what is that over there in the corner? And he goes, oh, pay no attention to that. That's not for sale. And they said, no, no, but what is it? He looked for a minute, and then he said, all right. And he went over to the corner, and he uncovered, he pulled it out, and he held it up, and he said, this is, this is my most prized possession. This is the greatest tool I have in all of my arsenal. And it doesn't look like much, and it doesn't seem like it can do much harm, but this is the most profitable tool I have. If I can use this tool, if I can get this tool to work in someone's life, then what it does is it opens the door for me to use any other tool I have. I can do anything I want in someone's life if I can use this tool in their life. Someone said, well, what is it? And he said, this is discouragement. If I can get someone discouraged, I can get them to do almost anything. It's just a story, but it does illustrate the power that discouragement can have in the life of a believer. It's a very powerful, powerful thing. It can cost us precious time. It can cost us a lot of pain. If we allow discouragement to to cause us to make decisions. What's also interesting to me about discouragement and, and, and the type of discouragement that Abraham is probably feeling at this time for whatever reason is that I've seen in my own life and in, and in, and in the, the Christian faith is that sometimes the greatest discouragement comes into our lives just before the greatest blessing arrives. And that's certainly true of Abraham, because when we read, not today, but next week in chapter 21, what happens next? He has the son that he's been waiting for for 25 years. That's the very next thing on God's calendar for him. Inside days, days after he makes this decision, the blessing that he's been waiting for comes. And how often is that in our lives, that we can just look at things and say, what in the world am I walking this walk for? What do I have to show for for my Christian experience And we can be days or even minutes away from the greatest blessing that God has for our life. And discouragement can cause us to detour it or to add pain with it. Beware of discouragement. Number two, when we belong to him, and we belong to him, we are protected with the greatest protection that there is. Look at what God was willing to do to a whole nation just for the sake of protecting one man and his wife and her purity. And, and Abraham didn't even know it, that that level of protection was on his life and that God was doing those things. And rest assured this, that if he is the father of those that believe, and we are his offspring, then that same protection rests upon you and I as well. There's a lot of talk these days about prepping. Guns. <laughs> Guns, gold, food, bunkers. All the rest, let me give you a word of good Christian advice. Don't waste your time and don't waste your money. Because the Bible says that God knows how to preserve that which has been committed to him. There was a while when I was thinking on those lines, you know, that I should have, you know, uh, ammunition and, you know, food and source of water and, you know, that kind of thing. And, And as I began to think, just think down that road a little bit. I became immediately overwhelmed. I was consumed. Because, because where do you stop? How do you know what to get and what not to get? How do you know what the need is going to be? There's no way that you can even know what it, what it is or how much or what to do with it or if you're going to be able to protect it. All of those things are variables that are completely outside of our control. And then the thought came to me that what if, 
What if God hands me over to my prepping? What if God says, well, you don't really need me because you took care of it yourself. And so I'll just let you rely upon what you supplied in the middle of all this. And my response to that was, you know what, Lord? I'm just going to trust you. (laughs) Because I see in your word, and I have your promise, that you can preserve and keep what's committed to your hand. And I'm going to trust you that whatever happens in our country or in our world or in the days to come, that you know right where I am and you know how to take care of me. You, You sent birds with bread every day and every night to feed Elijah when he was, you know, uh, being persecuted. I'm sure you can do, do the same. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's protection is on our lives. Number three, because of his protection that's upon our lives, we can afford to protect his reputation with our trust and obedience no matter what it may cost. What Abraham did wrong in this chapter is that he laid God's reputation in the dirt in order to save his own hide because of his fearfulness. There are going to be times, listen to me, there are going to be times when God calls you to be a witness for someone whose morality is equal to or greater than your own. In other words, there are people in this world who are not born again and that are not headed for heaven that actually possess a righteousness that's greater than yours or equal to yours. That's what we see with Abimelech here. He was the one that had integrity and uprightness of heart and wanted to do what was right. And Abraham was the one that was wrong. And here's what happened. Is that because Abraham compromised because of fear His morality ruined his credibility. Our character can ruin our witness. God calls us to be a witness of his credibility and his power within our lives. But what we build with our gifts or with our words, we can just as easily tear down with a bad character. And when our character is flawed and we're not walking in obedience to God in our lives, while we're walking alongside of other people, we can ruin the witness that we're bringing for God because they will look at our lives and say, well, you're telling me I need this Jesus, but it certainly isn't working for you, is it? That's exactly what Abimelech said to Abram. You're supposed to be the prophet. You're the one who's supposed to be praying for me, and I'm reproving you. And Abram's character ruined his credibility and his witness for God. And may that never happen to us. May we recognize all the time that what we do backs up what we say. And then finally, number four, don't move (laughs) without clear, specific leading from God. Especially when that move affects everyone in your life and everything that surrounds your life. I'm not talking about maybe relocating, uh, you know, from a, from a four-bedroom house to a condominium because you don't need the four-bedroom house. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the day-to-day decisions that we make. I'm talking about the things like what Abraham did here where he just decided, you know what, let's just go. And there was no, reason, no leading from God in the whole thing. He just decided to go. Be careful. Our lives are in his hands. And everything that we have belongs to him. Everything that we are belongs to him. 
And we must be very careful with what belongs to the Lord, that we deal with it very prayerfully and very carefully, and that we don't make rash decisions because of things that we're going through, discouragement or otherwise. And Abraham's life at this stage is a testimony to us that we must ever be on guard and ever keep ourselves before the Lord. Amen? Amen. Next week we'll get into uh, chapter 21. It gets real good soon. 21, we see the birth of Isaac. But 22, 24, some great, great things uh, coming up. So um, we'll leave it at that. Any, 